are listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanowski. Greg Tucker is the guest for this episode of Cumberland Road. Greg is the minister at the Faith Fellowship Cumberland Presbyterian Church in Lenore City, Tennessee. In our faith conversation, Greg shares how the church has been a functional family throughout his life and how we can find God's presence in everyday surroundings or as Greg shares, finding God behind every bush. Enjoy this conversation with Greg Tucker. Greg, I have a uh, question that puzzles me. I noticed that uh, on your resume that your undergraduate work uh, from North Greenville University in South Carolina was in church administration. So what is church administration? What were you thinking as a young man at that time? Uh, (laughs) One of the things, and and to give you just a little bit of a backdrop to that story, I originally attended my first two years of college at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, where I'm from, West Tennessee. And in doing that, I got married uh, after my sophomore year in college. And and I had promised my father-in-law that his daughter would graduate college. So I dropped out of college for a little (laughs) while so she could finish. And then to pick it back up, around 1992, we had moved to South Carolina. And as we moved there um, a few years later, uh, it really became a burden to finish college on my heart uh, in my last two years. And so I was having a conversation one day with the music director in the church that we were in at the time. And he happened to have some connections to North Greenville College. It was then. Now it's North Greenville University. And it's actually in a little bitty town called Tigerville, South Carolina. And it was a junior college at, in South Carolina in the uh, South Carolina Baptist Convention had taken over the school and wanted to make it a four-year college. And they were offering only two degrees at the time. And one was in nursing and the other was in church-related vocations or church administration. Okay. And uh, Now, were, did you move out there for... Uh, attending the college, or were you already living in the area? We were already living in the area. Some family circumstances. My wife is from uh, the upstate of South Carolina, Pickens, South Carolina, and uh, we had moved back there with some family circumstances that were unfolding. And uh, uh, while we were there, I was out of ministry at the time, but I was a part of Rhonda's home church. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and so some relationships there had opened up the door to look at at North Greenville. And so we were actually in, it was kind of an odd situation. They had not been accredited yet. They had to have a graduating class before they could have accreditation in, mm-hmm. in its final status. <laughs> and so I was part of the first four-year graduating class of North Greenville University. And uh and it was really kind of uh, neat because there were actually the professors that were a part of that program had come. They had real strong seminary background. Hmm. So I actually, in my college degree, in the major part of it, 
uh, I actually got a real foundational seminary education because I've actually taken uh, Greek, uh, New Testament Greek. I've actually taken about 15 or 16 semesters. Good grief. All total uh, with seminary in with what I did at North Greenville. Uh, but they did a great job of really walking you through um, uh, an education in church-related vocations and church administration. So, yeah, let's dive a little deeper in that. So okay. what, what, what makes it the administration part? I mean, because I, I just envision paperwork. Um, I'm falling into the stereotypes here. But right. maybe let me rephrase my question. So working through a church administration degree, how is it used in the church? Basically, what they tried to do was they tried not to pigeonhole the students that were in that major into one certain area. Mm-hmm. And so they took a wide approach to their education uh, with it. And they, they would walk through the, the different dynamics of youth ministry as part of that education. They'd walk through uh, as assistant pastors uh, of some kind and kind of auxiliary ministries uh, outside of the pastoral role and the pastor's role. So they walked through a lot of avenues in their classes in relationship to um the different administration of church roles uh, of ministry and trying to introduce you to that. So if really, that makes sense. Yeah. You were on for that university on the cutting edge of experimentation then. So yes. those professors were really given some freedom to sort of make the, make the syllabus and make the course work. Uh, as a deemed fit, I mean that must be a dream. If as an instructor, as a professor, it it, it was. Uh, we were a small class, if I remember correctly. There was only there was less than fifty of us that graduated in that first graduating class, and the everything was under a lot of scrutiny of the accreditation SACS. I think is what it was called at the yeah. time, <laughs> and the students they got to scrutinize the the classes you were taking, uh, you know, in, in a really deep way. But they were also interacting with the students, interviewing them, uh, trying to figure out what the, how, how good of a, it, an experience you were having with those level of classes. I had never been through anything like that. <laughs> uh, so that became a real interesting part of the journey too. It was part uh, of the administration Yes. Outside the classroom, yes. apparently. Outside the classroom, yeah. <laughs> All right. So what did you do with this church administration degree? You graduated, and we can bounce around in the timeline of your faith journey, Greg. Right. So you you have a newly minted diploma underneath your arm, and what, what were your plans? What were you going to do with that? My plans were to go to Beeson Divinity School at Samford University. My Old Testament professor at North Greenville and my uh, and the New Testament professor from North Greenville, they both had connections with some people that either taught or were in the administration of Beeson Divinity School at Sanford University in Birmingham. And I really wanted to study under Timothy George. I had uh, followed uh, quite a bit of his his work through the years. 
and he was the dean of the school. He was handpicked to be the dean of uh, Sanford. And so when we were preparing to move, but my best friend at North Greenville was on staff at a church as the music, children, and fellowships uh, director uh, at a church that was within seven or eight miles of North Greenville. And he didn't ask my permission to do this, but he submitted my name for an associate pastor role at his church. And, uh, uh, and lo and behold, he had to come and tell me because they wanted to talk to me. And, <laughs> and so uh, that kind of snowballed uh, into a little bit of a detour to actually practice my degree <laughs> from college to be an associate pastor. I was an uh, associate pastor of outreach and education and uh, senior adults at mm -hmm. uh, Mount Lebanon Baptist Church. And uh, so, uh, and, and to be honest with you, I wanted to go on to Beeson, uh, but the Lord wanted me to take this little detour and yeah. uh, be a part of this church. And, uh, and it's a very memorable part of my journey too. Really enjoyed it. Well, did you imagine yourself in the role of full-time ministry while you were a student there at um, North Greenville? I did. Uh, that That's always been uh, the benchmark for me or the, uh, the prize of the high calling uh, <laughs> was full-time ministry uh, because I accepted a call to pastor as a as an older teenager, I was, uh, uh, or into, you know, the gospel ministry, mm -hmm. uh, at some point, as much as I could define it at that age. And right. my pastor then had taken me under his wing and really nurtured me, uh, and nurtured that hunger to be, you know, in full-time ministry. And what was really, uh, strange, uh, and kind of unique about my journey that didn't happen uh, immediately full-time ministry uh, didn't, but uh, part-time ministry did and being bivocational mm -hmm. uh, to take care of my family, but still honor my calling as well. Uh, that was in place for a long time. And I'll be honest with you, being bivocational was the most difficult thing that I'd ever <laughs> encountered in life at that point. <laughs> and uh, I worked a full-time job and, and pastored, uh, church by vocationally and, and was in youth ministry prior to that. And well, there were a lot of days uh, that I was in a factory where I was just praying to God. It might have well have been my pit like Joseph was in, just praying, Lord, let me be full time in ministry. And it, it, and it did. It took a while for that to unfold for me. Mm -hmm. And you were a young man too. So you were, um, you were anxious. I would imagine, uh, and I'm I'm projecting myself uh, at that particular age, anxious to be able to get out there and and serve serve God through the the church and it, you know being bivocational almost seems like well that's a distraction to full time ministry. Now, uh, I don't want to deny the fact that my probably best moments of ministry was when I was bivocational, tri-vocational, quad-vocational, right. et cetera, because it really does put you out into the community as a minister um, with opportunities to share the gospel and share it in a language, in a way that others may be able to hear and see and experience through you. And I, I'd have to say my best 
pastoral care moments, if those exist, uh, they were never in a church office. Right. They were, they were always, um, you know, on the tailgate of the pickup truck or, right. you know, in the front of somebody's house or with a coworker out in the parking lot or whatever it may be. Those were uh, probably my best moments in terms of pastoral care given because they were ripe opportunities uh, right. to be able to share the gospel. So um, I understand I've done both, and who knows what the future may right. bring. There may be right. future opportunities for the same. I don't know. Right. But, but um, I, I would think, looking back in my own life, that uh, anxiousness to be able to, anything that was in the way of that preparation for ministry, an opportunity for ministry, seemed like a barrier or a distraction. And um, so I don't want people who are doing bivocational ministry <laughs> think that Greg, <laughs> Greg is against it. It's also the reality of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church <laughs> and many denominations as well. Yep. And one of my things about it now, I look back on it now, and I would give anything to be able to go back and redo that, those years, with the perspectives that I have now. Because now I tend to think some days that bivocational would be more freeing than being full-time. And that's <laughs> that's kind of strange. That's a real struggle sometimes inside of me. Yeah, there. You know, when I had those moments, I had to compartmentalize. So there was that separation of, of uh, I have to focus on this particular project or job or um, goal at this particular time because it's required of whichever, whether it's ministry or um, the, another vocation. You know, I couldn't allow that to bleed into too much because then nothing was done well. And again, this right. was for me. So there was that opportunity to where um, you had those moments of complete separation and also serving a congregation where you are bivocational. It does provide the, the, the local congregation to develop leadership where the responsibilities of leadership is shared by many instead of just one. It moves that moves us away from hiring the professional to where mm -hmm. the community of faith is the one exemplifying the mission and the good news of, of Christ. It isn't the paid professional. Right. And, and you hit on, on something that I think is really important. Uh, one is, you know, wherever you are and whatever you are, learn to be present in the moment, <laughs> uh, whether that's on the tailgate, or whether that's in the church sanctuary, you know, yeah. uh, sort of thing. But uh, the uh, other aspect of that bivocational uh, ministry tends to lend itself uh, to putting yourself in ministry positions more easily than being a full-time pastor. Mm -hmm. Because I find I have to work, I have to find and almost invent ways sometimes to put myself more in the world to be able to minister and uh, to reach people uh, and those sort of things. And the other trap about full-time ministry is that if you're uncomfortable getting out into the world to minister, then your office can, can become a place that you can hide. 
as a full-time minister and avoid some of that. And I, you know, that's a trap that I really, really, really try to fight hard uh, not to fall into. How do you, uh, what is working for you currently to not fall into that comfort zone of just being totally focused on, uh, in your case, Faith Fellowship, Cumberland Presbyterian Church. What do you do to help get you out into the community more? Uh, one of the things that I really liked uh, that uh, Faith Fellowship uh, was doing and, and did when I kept, their expectation of office hours is from 930 to 1230, Monday through Thursday. Mm-hmm. The rest of that time, I'm expected to be out in the, the field, uh, you know, doing ministry with people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think the way you structure your days plays a real important role in the mindset of being intentional. Uh, okay, I've got one to the rest of the day that I don't have to be in the church office. So I've got to be in, intentional about going somewhere to do something to minister to somebody. And uh, so you have to be a good self-manager of your your time, and you have to be intentional about your efforts of what you're going to do. Uh, but I think the way you structure your day uh, and what you do with that structure, um, you know, determines a, a lot about how your ministry opportunities that you have. Yeah. Uh, Jim Henderson, he wrote the, the book uh, uh, Evangelism Without Additives, and um, he talks about counting conversations, you know, out in the community, you know, intentional conversations, um, and connecting faith to those conversations. And, um, I I thought about that as you were talking about being intentional Mm -hmm. out into the community, you know, what could that look like? It could just be connecting with that store clerk or, you know, the person working behind the counter at a, at a fast food restaurant and developing relationships that way where you have these reoccurring opportunities to get to know these individuals um, on a regular basis and be a part mm-hmm. become part of their lives. Well, Greg, what did the young Greg want to be uh, when he grew up? What did Greg, five, six, seven, eight years old, what did he dream to be? When he became, well, your age now. <laughs> you're you're probably going to laugh at me. Originally, I wanted to be a cowboy. Uh, no kidding. That was evident through a lot of my Christmas gifts and birthday <laughs> gifts through the years uh, early on. Uh, but uh, my formative years were um, were difficult, uh, mm-hmm. to say the least. They, they were just characterized by quite a few losses. And... Uh, there was a real sense early on in my life uh, of God was there protecting me and providing for me and, uh, and 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 communicating with me, even though that I didn't fully understand it at the time. But my part of my formative years, my mother always made sure that we were in church, uh, mm-hmm. and that was kind of important for us. I grew up in the home of an alcoholic father. And, uh, just a lot of dysfunction there. And um, and the church became the functional part of my life, even from an early age. They became kind of the functional family uh, that shaped my life. So uh, I had a lot of leanings uh, towards 
the appeal of ministry, even in my youngest formative years that, you know, I could establish some understanding. So it moved from being, wanting to be a cowboy <laughs> to, <laughs> to be a pastor uh, eventually. And, uh, and I'd have people in, in the uh, church that I was in as a teenager, you know, they, they could kind of see some things developing and mm-hmm. those people would speak into my life, not necessarily say, I think God's calling you to be a pastor, but I think God really has a purpose for you in your life. And I had a mother that that said that to me a lot through the years. And, and so it was pretty much shaped inside of me that God had a purpose for my life. And 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 then in my teenage years, I had a relationship with a, my pastor that was just unbelievable. And uh, my youth directors went on to be missionaries in uh, Africa. And through them, uh, the ministry that they had with me, it really opened up the doors to hear the Lord call me into ministry. And then in my adult life, he's made it very plain that there's a lot of things I cannot do. But one (laughs) thing I can do is I can speak to the heart of another person about God. Uh, And that seems to be uh, kind of my my gift and my strength. You were, so as a high school student, you kind of had an idea that you were going to be a minister while your other peers may not have any inkling right? or, you know, may have been, you know, a business or a medical doctor or baseball player or whatever yes. it may be, you know? Yes. And yes. I have some wondering sometimes because that's really all I've, I was a welder for 10 years as a bivocational pastor. 10 or 11 years. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've always wondered what it would be like to have kind of a, what I would call a normal calling in life to be something <laughs> other than a pastor. What is that like? Because yeah. I, I, I've never experienced that uh, sort of thing. And when I have been thrust into that uh, mm-hmm. vocationally, I struggled with it. Because I wanted to be, a, I knew I was meant to be a full-time pastor. And so it's it's been an interesting journey in, in those regards. When you were a teenager, what did you envision the full-time ministry to look like? And then compare that to your life experiences and your vocational experiences. Did it meet all those expectations? So we'll start with what did you dream that looked like as a, as a, a young man, and now what does that look like uh, where you currently are with all the, you know, just with life and family and work and service? Is it all that it's cracked up to be? <laughs> and more. <laughs> uh, the expectation wise, uh, I, I think the, the way you, uh, <laughs> create ideal expectations gets crashed pretty quickly in ministry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it, and it is a shock. It, it is a real shock because I can remember uh, uh, be, being in the pastorate, especially at a, a pretty young age. I think I was 23 when I first pastored a church and had been in youth ministry and about two or three other churches prior to that. Youth ministry, there wasn't quite as big a shock as pastoral <laughs> ministry was. Uh, but 
uh, and you just don't have that level of understanding, you still have those, uh, you know, ideals that you have out there that you want to, uh, expectations, but the Lord's got a way of bringing those back into reality, uh, in, in the way church ministry unfolds, uh, sometimes, uh, the one thing that, uh, through the years being a pastor, uh, that's, been tough is is balancing the time that you give to your family hmm. uh, and to the time you give to your personal life uh, and the time that you give to your calling, hmm. uh, which turns into your vocation, which can be all consuming if you're not good at setting boundaries. Yeah. And early on, I don't think I was that great at setting boundaries and learning how to do that and balancing pastoral ministry with all the other important things in your life. Uh, it, it, it was kind of maddening for me at first on the inside, mm-hmm. uh, trying to figure that out and wondering how in the world did my pastor ever do this, you know, sort of <laughs> thing. And, and he, my, my, my pastor is a teenager, uh, Levi Parrish is his name and he's, he's passed away now, but he, uh, he did a really good job with me of kind of showing me what ministry was like. He was involved in jail ministry and he would take me with him and he would actually put me in positions of, mm-hmm. of preaching, you know, as an older teenager with him there by my side and take me to nursing homes and, uh, and, and preach and teach there and uh, those sort of things. And, and really kind of took me alongside to help me see what pastoral ministry was about and 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 to any pastors that have teenagers that have expressed a calling, that's probably the best thing that you can do for them is take them under your wing and let them be present with you where you, where it's reasonable to do so uh, to be present with you in a lot of different levels of ministry. Yeah. Uh, it, it it helps with that process. Greg, I my calling in ministry also came as as a teenager, and let's talk for a few minutes about a lot of the conversations I have with ministers about their faith. It's it's tied into the vocation, you know. It's very much the relationship with God is a relationship with the church, and I think the younger you are, in terms of your calling into ministry uh, also adds a layer to that in terms of separating my relationship with God through Christ and with the calling that I have, because I'm a Christian first, I'm a believer first, and then I'm a believer that happens to have a calling that serves a community of faith in this particular way. So let's talk about the the struggles that come with that, but also dive a little bit deeper. And what makes your relationship with God unique, different than the other relationships that you have here? Here, <laughs> this sounds. I was going to say here on Earth, but that sounds <laughs> that sounds so strange. <laughs> but but what is the distinctions between your relationship with God and the relationships that you have through your family and through your profession? Uh, it, the one key element for me that's common in all of those is my ability to be able to discern what God's up to 
uh, in the midst of that. And, and really that, that that's who I am, uh, uh, from my, uh, formative years, there's just, it was a deep sense of God, uh, being there for me, even though that I didn't know him at the time in the way that I came to know him as a teenager. And even as I grew up, uh, into an adult in my walk with him, um, it's just being able to uh, experience that, and 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 that's so common with me uh, that I forget that it's not common with every person that I get to minister to, and so uh, I I, I kind of have to be uh, you know keep that in in the back of my mind uh, in every encounter that I have with someone, but being able to balance out all of those different roles. Uh, one one that's been real helpful for me, my wife, uh, Rhonda, she has she had experienced to be a, a calling to be a pastor's wife before we ever met. Hmm. And uh, it's just a, a real miraculous thing for me in my journey. <laughs> and my wife is my antennas uh, for me. And, right. and she she knows when to let me know you're out of balance over here. You're out of balance over there, you know, kind of thing. She's, she's really good at helping me uh, with that through the years and, and, and coming alongside me. So, so having that partner like that in ministry, I think is a, a, a real key um, thing, but you also through the years, I've learned to be intentional about saying no mm-hmm. to ministry sometimes so that I can say yes more to my family. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or yes, more to my personal life when I need to do something to let myself take a break and, mm-hmm. and to experience some rest. Uh, because, you know, if you don't learn that kind of balance in all of those areas that you're called to, because you're called as much to be a husband and a father as much as you are to be a pastor. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you you've got to learn those distinctions uh, uh, in in the specifics of each of those roles and how to give yourself because if you don't you'll get to the point to where you'll experience such a burnout that it, it all of those areas will begin to suffer and 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 the one that is your income <laughs> could turn out not to be your income anymore if you're not careful uh, and, and you just don't you just don't have what you need to offer to all of those people in your lives and to those different roles the Lord has called you to. Yeah. I just wondered, and I've been running this thought experiment, you know, for ministers and we can be very much wrapped up in, in our profession. And, but what if that aspect of your calling into ministry was removed? That this is just a general question that I've been asking of myself, should we ask ministers this? So if that sense of calling was removed, do you still see yourself as a Christian or could you see yourself as a Christian? Because I just see a lot of bleed over in terms of my relationship with God is my relationship with the church. And what if the church local or otherwise doesn't, recognize or see or in in need of the gifts that you currently have, or maybe your gifts change. Maybe the calling, the ministry is seasonal, like so many other things where you have callings in and out. 
Right. Um, I'm still working on the thought experiment. Still don't have it articulated well, but I'm wondering how many ministers currently serving would be Christians or what that relationship with God looks like if you remove the element of service through uh, part-time or full-time ministry. And I, I know that's an individualized question, but maybe it's one we need to be posing to ourselves for those who fulfill the calling to the, the Word and the sacraments. Right, right. And that's a real interesting question, especially from my perspective, because I did go through a period of where the Lord asked me to lay down pastoral ministry as I had known it for almost 20 years. And I was almost 40 at the time. And, uh, and, and my wife and my 16-year-old son at the time could see it very clearly. And I struggled with that <laughs> for probably about two years. And then I finally came to the place where I could say, yes, I see this happening. And we're going to answer this call if y'all are comfortable with it. Because I had no no income to turn to. I had no other work to turn to. But we knew the Lord were, was calling all of us to uh, for me to do that. And so uh, with their uh, seeing the Lord in that way and me too, we laid it down. And I went uh, 2006 to 2015. I went about nine years. Hmm. I actually continued to do ministry and did it in a different way. Uh, but one of the things I realized once I stepped out of, of, of an official pastoral role, something that I had allowed happen to happen was that I had allowed that pastoral role to become my identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and that period of being out of the pulpit and out of the official pastoral role um, it, it, it helped me to see, uh, and to let go of some things and not let pastoral ministry be my sole identity. And, um, so that, that was a very, it was a struggle. I was like a fish out of water for uh, several of those years, even though I was still engaged in a ministry that Rhonda and I had started together and the ministry part was successful, but it, it was far different. But it it from the pastoral role that I had known prior to that, and and I think you have to be really really careful as a pastor that you don't let pastoral ministry become your sole identity. Um, I, I don't I don't think ministry is that Jesus intends ministry to be that way, uh, because there's so much more to who you are as a as a pastor than just that pastoral role i hope that makes sense yeah so you discovered this in your early 40s oh what message do you have for the men and women serving who who haven't who haven't reached that place or haven't thought of it that way or it may be further along in their ministry. What pointers, what flags would you turn them to? I, and, and maybe draw from your own experience. How did you arrive? How did God, uh, God help you see 
this is what you needed to do for a season or indefinitely, which was yeah. not indefinitely, but. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, it, it, and it's really, it, it has a lot to do with what I, I feel like is really embedded in my DNA spiritually mm-hmm. uh, it, is that ability to hear the Lord and, 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 and trust the way he communicates with you in that personal relationship. Uh, because there, there was a, there was, I, I've always been, this has kind of been my niche in pastoral ministry. I've always been involved in churches that needed to experience revitalization and, and every pastoral experience I've had that that's been the characteristic, the common characteristic through the years. And, uh, there, so there was an element inside of me, there were some transitions that were taking place that, that sometimes I wondered, do I really need to be in this pastoral pulpit with this kind of transition taking place inside <laughs> of me? And, and and that was hard because there were things that were happening for me and had been happening for me in that pastoral role that no longer fit in 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 the landscape of ministry that I was in and had always been in all those years. Mm. And, and and so uh, that's the personal aspect of that and that personal relationship and your ability to discern what God and how God is communicating with you. And I trusted that very deeply inside of me, but I always kind of put out the fleece for more confirmation. And so then when my <laughs> wife and my son uh, could see it before I even could, then, then you know, that, that helped, helped me along my way to find my way through that. But for someone who's who's in ministry, it's it's really personal to to your walk. Uh, but trust your ability to be able to discern what God is saying to you. And and once I, I have a way of being able to do that. Uh, and it's there's four areas of your life that will align itself: uh, your prayer life, your Bible life, your church life and the circumstances of your life. Mm-hmm. And when when all four of those line up, then you can be assured that you, you have arrived at God's will, whatever that is. And then there's the not being afraid to follow through on that. Yeah. And that period outside of the pulpit, when, when that was, uh, when I let go of that, it wasn't really taken away from me. I let go of it. Uh, when that when that space opened up, it was tremendous. Something I had longed for for a long, long time in my life for inner healing and inner rest, uh, restoration took place. It gave me the space to be able to experience that. And so that seven, eight years of my life uh, are probably some of the most monumental moments of my life of walking with God, because something I'd been really been chasing for, for a long time in my life actually occurred. And the funny thing about it, there was a point in time when I was trying to develop this other ministry uh, during that, that period that one day in the office, I was sitting in the office working on some things. And the Lord asked me, would you go back into pastoral ministry if I wanted you to? And just, I flippantly just said out loud, yes, I will, Lord. Yes, I will. Thinking it would never happen. And lo and behold, just a few months later after that, it wasn't long till he made me 
Cumberland Presbyterian. <laughs> I came into the Cumberland Presbyterian Church out of all of those experiences. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, Greg, uh, this is a good segue. Your growing up years was in the Milan, Tennessee area, which is western yes. western half of Tennessee. And there's quite a few Cumberland Presbyterian churches. Yes. And Cumberland Presbyterian Church in America in that area, geographical area. Yes. So how in the world did you grow up without having any, <laughs> not being Cumberland Presbyterian in that geographical area? <laughs> yeah. Uh, th- it's interesting because uh, it, at the time in my formative years, a number of my friends attended the Cum- uh, Cumberland a Presbyterian Church in Milan, mm-hmm. and I knew that, and I actually visited that church with them some, but never crossed my mind that I would actually become <laughs> Cumberland Presbyterian. Well, and, let, let me interrupt you there. So let's pause here just for a moment. So what was, uh, and I, I realize you're a teenager, but in in some honesty and some memory, what was your initial impressions of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? Uh, I was I was very comfortable with it as, as much as uh, a teenager can be comfortable with, with church, period. Right. Uh, but had good memories uh, of that, had real close relationships with friends and their families uh, that right. were a part uh, of, of the church there. I, I didn't know if your first impression fit into the stereotype of the Presbyterians of kind of staunch and quiet, yeah, it, it really didn't. It, it, it didn't. Uh, I thought, Cumberland Presbyterians at the time were more like I was and, okay. and felt very comfortable from that, from that Good. perspective. Good. All right. I interrupted your train of thought, but no, uh, we're, we're leading into um, how you and the Cumberland Presbyterian Church met. Uh, how we met. Uh, yeah. One of the things that was unfolding for us uh, during the latter part of my break from pastoral ministry um, at the Lord's directions, uh, I, we we kind of got in a position financially because uh, I, I what had happened with the ministry that we were developing when we were in Birmingham. Uh, this became my deep connection with Cumberland Presbyterians. We were actually doing uh, ministry out of our home and offering pastoral counseling and those sort of things, and I met. Scott Fowler, who pastors uh, Spring Creek Church in, mm-hmm. in uh, Montevallo, Alabama. And uh, he he came through some of the men's retreats that I was doing, and, and we became connected as a result of that. It, it seemed to have an impact on Scott's life, and, and Scott and I became close friends. Well, Scott uh, started trying to reel me in. He kept telling me, he says, what you do fits Cumberland uh, Presbyterian theology extremely well, and this would work well, and we need pastors. <laughs> and so he worked really, really hard during my hiatus from uh, pastoral ministry uh, that as I had known it as a pastor, he worked really, really hard to be the Holy Spirit and to reel me into Cumberland Presbyterians. And, uh, and, and out of that, I met Mike Wilkinson when he was in uh, the Birmingham area, uh, mm. and uh, actually wound up doing a retreat uh, for the, uh, some of the leadership, pastoral leadership in the Grace Presbytery. Mm. Uh, and then 
uh, Mike started working on me as well a little bit, and uh, he said, and he was just convinced that what I was doing would work. So I had gone to Scott, and I told him, I said, if you know of a church that needs a fill-in, I would be more than willing to start filling in. And uh, he said, well, I know a church right now, and, and it was Coker Cumberland Presbyterian Church just outside of uh, Northport, uh, Tennessee, in Coker. And I went there to fill in two Sundays in 2011. And I wound up being there four years as their pastor and wow. uh, and was a phenomenal experience. And the thing that started happen, happening for me there right off the bat was they really identified with who I was and my preaching, probably more so than anywhere I'd ever been before. <laughs> and it started to feel like, hey, I'm, I'm finding a home here for who I am. And, you know, I'm not really having to fly under the radio, radar with some of the stuff that I think the Lord has done with me and wants me to pastor from that perspective. So it was that's how that unfolded and how that came to be. And then while I was at Coker, I really struggled with the, like a plant being pulled up from where you thought you were planted mm -hmm. to being pulled up your roots and all and planted somewhere else. And it took me a little while to be convinced uh, uh, in the pause program. Uh, Dr. Q, Dr. Qualls, uh, he really walked with me through that struggle in a big way. And I really struggled with my three three or four classes I had to do for the pause in the middle of that, not with the classes at all, but just that being replanted somewhere else that was that didn't meet my expectations, <laughs> uh, to be honest with you. And, and then, uh, you know, just became convinced of it uh, around 2014, I think it was. And, and my ordination was recognized and I became... Cumberland Presbyterian there in the Grace Presbyterian. All right. And the history continues to unfold. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and I tell you, you say the history. One of the things that really attracted me, because I, I really hold something in my heart that, that the Lord made me to be a part of a great movement of God, a great outpouring of God. My mom has told me that from the time I was little. And one of the things that I, it's just like something in my heart, an expectation the Lord's put there that there's going to be a mighty outpouring. And when I read the Cumberland Presbyterians' history of their formation, boy, I, I, the Lord started reeling me in <laughs> at that time. And uh, uh, boy, I would really like to see that happen again. Uh, yeah. See that outpouring of God again. Greg, yesterday we were uh, talking by phone. And um, you were sharing that at Faith Fellowship, Cumberland Presbyterian Church in Tennessee, the past two and a half years, the congregation has suffered the loss of 17 members. Yes. Um, that is, regardless of congregation size, that is such a loss in terms of loved ones and uh, gifts and ministry, passions found within the local congregation, kind of walk me through how the congregation heals and how your role is, is helping Faith Fellowship and how everyone's eyes are kind of cast to, to the future because that losses like that help shape mission and ministry presently but also in the future. 
one of the key characteristics that it, that it does, and, and, and it really does uh, uh, kind of, it refocuses everything in your personality as a church does change when you experience. And I, I think it's that number. I'm correct on that number. I could stand to be corrected. It could be a little fewer than that, but I, we were having a discussion just recently here in the office and, and we think it's about that many over the last two and a half years uh, it, it, that it does when you experience those kind of losses uh, through death uh, in a congregation, it changes the personality of the church. You, you're, you're not quite who you used to be. Uh, it's, it's very unsettling for the church family. Uh, and so you really have to spend some time walking with them and God in, in you know, what, what is life going to look, look like in the midst of these losses? It's, it's just like an individual that, that loses a spouse or a close relative. That you do have to have a period of, of grieving, and, and you've got to be able to walk through those stages of grief with each other and with the Lord, and, and, and let the Lord help you see what He's trying to do. And you used, I, I love the word you use, the, the refocusing uh, of who you are, uh, really does come into play in that. And 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 for me as a a pastor in trying to walk through the grieving part of that with our church, but also trying to discern what God is up to uh, in the midst of such losses, because my whole life uh, in, in calling and walk with the Lord comes out of a series of losses in my formative years. Being able to find God in the midst of such losses and let him define what life is going to look like in the days ahead it, it is real, real important. Uh, maybe as a pastor, I have to be in tune with that. Uh, and then I have to find avenues of being able to um, uh, lovingly uh, communicate that with, to the congregation as well. And then when it starts coming together, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing uh, yeah. when that, when you start seeing pockets of it unfold, in your congregation that, hey, they're seeing the same thing I'm seeing. They're hearing the same thing that I'm hearing. Yeah. And to take the moment to pause and to celebrate those moments of joy and gifts of happiness when they're there. Um, you know, it, it oftentimes I think as a local congregation and maybe maybe even just as a denomination, you know, we get through an event uh, or an activity, or a season, and then you know, we are already planning or pre-planning for the, the next. When we didn't pause long enough and celebrate the, the moment that the event pulled off against obstacles, or, you know, unforeseen things, or, you know, these beautiful things occurred, and we didn't even anticipate or plan for them. And, you know, even those pats on the back for those who stood up in moments of leadership and carried through, you know, on behalf of the entire community of faith and um, acknowledging, you know, their sacrifices and their commitment as well. We, we can slow down long yep. enough, pause long enough 
to be able to to do that and go we went above and beyond what we thought was capable I, exactly exactly i see that and in that's the, the that's the foundation that you want to build on the mm-hmm. celebration of those those moments and uh the lord taught me early on i made a mission trip early uh, uh shortly before i stepped out of the pastorate following the lord for a short period of time I went to India, and one of the things that happened to me there uh, was it was just dramatic how God unfolded. I was there for 30 days, and I come home, and my wife told me, she said, you're using this phrase, God behind every bush, because everywhere we turned, you know, you you see something behind every bush, you know, when you're aware of something very keenly. (laughs) And I kept, my wife kept saying, you're using this phrase, God behind every bush. and you know, I think all of all of life and all of ministry is like that, and mm-hmm. and and we need to have more of that perspective of being able to see God behind every bush uh, in our lives because He's there, He's working, and and a lot of that. Sometimes you've you've talked a good bit with me about expectations, uh, and sometimes the toughest things to overcome in life is unmet expectations, and. Um, and so that's why it's important for us to be able to align our perspectives with God, because with him, there's never that disappointment of yeah. unmet expectations if we're living his expectations. Mm. All right, Greg, let's talk about your hopes for the church, church with a capital C, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and just the Christian church. Where would you like to see us in the future? What will our ministries or our missions look like? Uh, one of the things that, um, that if you that if I you were in charge, if you were in charge, if I was in charge, uh, they were. I would like to see a redefining of what discipleship is really about, and and you you've hit on it in some of our conversations today, I think prior to our recording, uh, and I love the analogy that you used, that sometimes as the church, we're, we're looking for something that someone can give us in a box yeah. <laughs> uh, that we can pull out of that box and find what works for us. And, and, and then, you know, we can move on to the next thing in ministry uh, and, and that sort of thing. And, and to me, discipleship is much more than a program. It's much more than a ministry model. Uh, and, and it's really, for me, is summed up in that phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And um, uh, I would like for us to see, because for me, discipleship just literally means walking with God. Um, and being able to discern what he is saying, what he is up to, what he is doing, and, and then trying to adjust our lives to join him uh, in those in those things. And I think when we're able to do that, that that's the true essence of discipleship. Uh, one of the things that we did with the ministry that we were doing while I was out of pastoral ministry, uh, one of the things that we actually did was try to uh, our best and give our best effort to teaching people how to hear God uh, 
mm-hmm. because it's the old saying, uh, if you give a man a fish, you fed him for a day. But if you teach the man to fish, you fed him for a lifetime. I think if I can teach a person to hear God or discern how God is communicating with them and what he's communicating with them, and the personal relationship being the very foundation of that, then I can I can unleash the kingdom of God for a lifetime inside and, and through that person. And that's really my passion for individual Christians and for churches. That's kind of my passion in ministry because that ministry I developed back in Birmingham when I was out of the pulpit, I now pastor from that perspective. Uh, where I wasn't quite as much prior to that. And so I'm getting to do that as a Cumberland Presbyterian. But I would like to see a kind of a recapturing of biblical discipleship. And um, and, and, and one nut that I haven't cracked yet that I'm trying real hard to, I know is a passion of yours, is evangelism, mm-hmm. uh, because it's very different in the time in which we live. And, and I think we need to allow the Lord to teach us how he wants it done yeah. in the environment that we're in. Because for me, I think the church is thrust to, into an environment. Uh, when you look at Acts uh, 15, 16, right in there, Paul goes to uh, Berea, has a great ministry there. He goes to the next location. He has a great outpouring of God there. And then he goes to Athens. And I think it's either Acts 16 or 17. And it's not quite the same landscape uh, for evangelism that the other two places prior to Paul was. And he had to take a whole different approach and accept a whole different outcome. And I think the environment that we're in now as the church is we're more like Athens than we are those prior two places that we've been in the past. And that evangelism is going to have to be done in a very different way in relationship to that. Yeah, we were talking about that off mic, that um, I mean, the way is if we're inviting people to a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we have to have a relationship with yes. the, the, the people that we're interacting with, that we're talking with, that we're sharing time and space together with. And in this day and time, trust has to be developed. Exactly. And, and so that is, it has always been an element of evangelism. Um, I think it, we need to embrace that aspect more that, um, and take the time of developing deep, thoughtful, life-giving relationships so that we can be those pointers to Christ, those inviters to Christ. Um, and I think as Cumberland Presbyterians, that serves us very well uh, with our history and where we are currently and most likely will be in the near future that we, we relish being in the presence of one another. It's an expectation. It's a, it's a desire and um, so it's part of our DNA. And so, therefore, it is the same in the community, the larger community that we're a part of. It's just being a little more intentional 
in the conversations that we're having with our neighbors and family members and, and, and coworkers, classmates, is to take the take those conversations to a, another deeper, intimate level of, you know, the meaning of life, the, the purpose of relationships, you know, um, goals, you know, expectations, uh, what to do with struggles, how to celebrate with joys, you know, the move beyond just the superficial into something more deep. I mean, everyone desires to be listened to, to be heard. Yeah. And all Cumberland Presbyterians have a listening ear or two. Yep. Use them. Use them. Exactly. Very much so. You talked about um, the emphasis on discipleship. So there's individual discipleship, and I think there's also collective discipleship. So in terms of defining discipleship, which do you think would help uh, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? The individual discipleship or us collectively? Wow, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, because <clears throat> I think uh, I think it can it, 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 there has to be a balance of both. Yeah. Uh, and and ju- I have really not thought about this question. And when you were asking it, one of the things that has happened here at Faith Fellowship that I don't think I've really thought about uh, until you asked the question is that I think this collective discipleship can happen from the pulpit uh, on an ongoing basis. And and sometimes in the background, in the way you operate as a pastor from the pulpit, you, you have to be intentional about it. But I, I think it's kind of like the system that runs in the background of a computer. We never know that it's operating that way, really. We just put the commands in and do the things we do with a computer, and, and it happens. And, and I think if on the inside you're intentional uh, about expressing yourself that way, that that collective discipleship can happen through your preaching ministry in the church. And a lot of that has to do uh, with what's happening with you as a pastor on the inside, the kind of flowing out to your congregation mm-hmm. uh, as well. But I, I really think that uh, for it to have its deepest effect, I think the individual discipleship is really important. And as and what that looks like for me as a pastor is being able to have uh, um, uh, relationships that I know are intimate discipleship relationships with individual members in, in the congregation. And you kind of have to do both the collective. You, you can't just focus on one. Uh, because if you focus on one, the other is going to be missing. And if you focus just on individual discipleship, you may wind up hurting some feelings yeah. by some other folks as well in the process. But but you, you've got to have a balance of both because I think the Lord does give you as a pastor the opportunity to disciple individual people. Uh, and you have to make space for that in your structure that we talked about earlier of how you do ministry in the day. Uh, of being able to be intentional about your efforts of discipling individual people. Because I think in the long run, they both pay different dividends to the life of the church and in, in, uh, defining who that church is and helping them to see who they are in Christ. 
Yeah. When you said discipleship, um, I noticed that one of the authors that you like to uh, to read and follow is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yes. And um, I didn't know our conversation was going to go in this way. And I, I'm no Bonhoeffer scholar, but I don't know if there is really a place where he arrived in terms of the individual and the collective discipleship. Uh, with my limited readings of his, because... I mean, he got frustrated quite a bit with the collective discipleship yes. and, and its inactivity during a specific period of time. Um, but he also struggled with his own individual discipleship as well. And I'll have to go back and take a look at that yep. and, and, and see. Yeah. And, and the fascinating thing for me, for Bonhoeffer, uh, is in, in his discipleship, uh, where he, where he arrived at the level uh, of of what he did in relationship to evil that was unfolding around him uh you know it, it, that's unimaginable to me uh you know and to hear god it's some of the things that he felt like the lord was leading him to uh, through his individual discipleship of his own heart, uh, it's, I don't know, there's something that's very overwhelming about the role he played in in the culture of the church and the world in his time. Right. Yeah, and I, there's a danger there as well, I think, for us yes. as Christians to, if we can't find an enemy, we create one. Yes. And, you know, we feel like to operate at optimal for as a disciple um, or a cause for my uh, denomination or my interpretation of the scriptures or whatever may be endangered. And, yes. and so the motivation is found in an enemy. And if there isn't one, then one can be created. Right. He did face an enemy. I'm not minimizing that, but I, I'm I'm thinking more for for us, just day to day discipleship. If uh, the temptation of going, well, since uh, things seem to be going okay or decently, but I want to be a better disciple, I need to find a reason <laughs> to be a better <laughs> disciple by creating a, an evil or an enemy. Yeah, and and that can go horribly wrong. It can go horribly wrong. I, I don't trust myself <laughs> enough uh, to hardly even identify with the level of, of what he did and, and where right. he was at and, and those sort of things. I'm still trying to grow to that level. Uh, but uh, I, I think our greatest challenge and standard that we have is, you know, the only person that we're working to please is is the Lord. Mm. And uh uh, and there's a lot of stuff that can get wrapped up in ministry in that, you know, pleasing people, uh, and those sort of pleasing myself and uh, <laughs> in relationship to uh, what my role is as a pastor. But you, right. you really have to hold on to that standard. You know, I'm working to please the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, what are you reading right now? Uh <laughs> That's funny that you say this. Eric Metaxas' book on Bonhoeffer's life. No kidding. 
No kidding. Yep. I just picked it up a couple of weeks ago. And and it's kind of weird for me because I've never been a fiction reader uh, much at all. I have real trouble reading, trying to stick with reading fiction, but I've been an avid reader, but it's always been nonfiction that's related to my, either to my, my walk with the Lord or my ministry. And, uh, or I like to read biographies. I I learn a lot from people's stories and, uh, uh, those sort of things. But I, I, for some reason, I've, I've gone back and picked up Eric Metaxas' book on Bonhoeffer's life okay. and started reading it again. And But the, what I was going to say, I have learned that I, as I've gotten older, I'm, I turned 60 a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that I, I've learned, I've never been one to battle with cynicism mm-hmm. in any way. But at this stage of life, I am really it's probably my one of my strongest battles uh, right now, and uh, uh, and and, by, and because of that, my reading has suffered. I, I don't read as much as I used to, and I've really felt like the Lord was saying, "Pick up Bonhoeffer's biography and read." So, well, my friend, I'm not sure if that was the wisest choice. <laughs> Because Bonhoeffer's expectation of of the church that he loved so much, yeah. um, uh, man, they 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 couldn't do it. They yeah. re- they really 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 struggled, and um, yeah, he he lets that out. He lets it be known where the yeah. church is faltering. It didn't win yeah. him any friends, that's for sure. It, exactly. And, you know, that's something that I've had to balance. Not, I'm not putting myself on Bonhoeffer's level in any way. <laughs> but this brings up a really good point that I think is really important for pastors. Because sometimes we can carry a passion in our heart, and we try to communicate that passion. But if your church is not at the same level that you that you are with that passion, it can really be two bulls clashing heads uh, if you're not careful. And and you can really miss what your congregation needs from you if you're not careful. So as a season, Does that make sense? Yeah. So as a seasoned Christian and as a seasoned minister, when that recipe gets mixed in the pot of stew, um, what is a twofold question? what will help the congregation or the congregation's leadership um, to, to recognize it. And then what will help the, the, the minister as well, whose level of passion for X is at level eight. And for the congregation, it's a level two, you know, because that can lead to conflict, which is not always bad, but can lead to some real hardships. Right. Right. And and you can really lose some speak people spiritually uh, in your church if you're not real careful. Um, it, it it can shorten the effectiveness of your ministry where well, you are. Yeah, yeah, the um, longevity of the place that you're serving. <laughs> yes, yes, and, and, but I think that question that you constantly have to raise is not what I want to communicate specifically, but is what does this church need from God? And and let God walk you through answering that question. One of the things that's happened for me here at Faith uh, is 
I guess since just prior to COVID, I started more than I ever have in my ministry of preaching through series. Mm. And um, something very mysterious has kind of happened in that for me. And I can tell from the response of people in the congregation uh, that it is really speaking to them and really ministering to them. And I'm kind of stumbling into series that I would not have necessarily chosen <laughs> specifically. And uh, so that's made me more aware of that uh, because there's, there's a little deeper connection, I think. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and my story, my background, if there's a fable that characterizes my walk with God and my pastoral ministry, it's Hansel and Gretel. The devil does everything he can to keep me captive. <laughs> and, and, and imprison me, but the Lord gives me breadcrumbs along the way. And then there's a moment where I look up and I have found my way home in uh, <laughs> the breadcrumbs that he's laid out from. So I kind of stumble into things. <laughs> well, Greg, I am glad that you stumbled into this conversation. I, I've truly Thank enjoyed you, it. I've, and, me too. And, and um, I hope those breadcrumbs um, lead to some other great places that keep you away from the cynicism that is growing yes. upon you <laughs> in your young at heart years. <laughs> I greatly appreciate that, PJ, and appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you and others as well. <laughs> thank you, Greg. All right. Thank you, TJ. Thank you for listening to The Cumberland Road. If you would, subscribe and follow on Apple and Spotify. Greg mentioned in our conversation that one of his favorite writers is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So I thought it would be fitting to close this conversation with one of his writings. On October the 31st, 1942, Dietrich wrote to Maria, soon to be his fiancée, after learning of the news that her brother Max had died. In an attempt to encourage her, Bonhoeffer writes, at such times, it can only help us to cast ourselves upon the heart of God, not with words, but truly and entirely. This requires many difficult hours, day and night. But when we have let go entirely into God, or better, when God has received us, then we are helped. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There really is joy with God, with Christ. Do believe it. But each person must walk this way alone. Or rather, God draws each person onto it individually. Only prayers and the encouragement of others can accompany us along the way.